The Lord be with you. Luke 9, part 2. I'd very much like to be the only, the end of Luke 9. I don't want there to be a part 3, so I'm going to try to, try to keep rolling today. Um, we got a lot of carryover from Luke 9 to Luke 10, but one thing I started talking about last week that we started to see toward the end of the transfiguration was a transition, uh, a seeming transition among the apostles, or maybe it's not a transition, but it's a highlighting that's occurring in the Gospel of Luke on the, the apostles' misunderstanding of in what way Jesus is the Messiah. In what way will he be the Christ? And just in much of the same way that maybe uh, popularly understood as, as the Palm Sunday crowd uh, waving the palm branches in victory. Here comes Jesus as Savior King. Um, but they're thinking military victory, which would be the Palm Association, would be with military victory. And they certainly got it. Uh, they understood what Jesus was communicating. Um, and the donkey, I mentioned this in the sermon briefly, but the, like the don- Jesus going to get the donkeys, having disciples go, it was this really long, inconvenient way to enter the city. He could have just walked, but he sent to go get the donkeys so that he could ride on a very uncomfortable donkey. Has anyone in here ever ridden a donkey? I guess if you go to the Grand Canyon, you ride, I guess, like the only way, the mules. I guess there's a difference, by the way, in mules and donkeys. Mules are more like the can be used for travel in some way. Donkeys, we grew up with, we grew up with uh, horses and we used the donkeys to, uh, to they, they protect the baby horses from coyotes and stuff. And also when you're breaking mares, like baby horses to be bridled, to lead with a lead rope, they don't want to do it. None of us want to be led. <laughs> so you, you have to tackle down this horse and put the, put the halter on them, put a lead rope on them and then tie it to the donkey and walk away. And the donkey just goes where they want to go. And the little baby's fighting with them, fighting with them, fighting with them. Finally, they just give up. They learn to not fight with the donkey anymore. But because they're so, they're famous for being stubborn and not really moving quickly and stuff. So whenever we had people over at the house who, who had never ridden horses or like kids when babies were in the family and everything, like you take the baby, you can put a newborn baby on top of the donkey. It's not going to move. And if it did, it's just like really slow and jerky. So I just, in my mind, whenever it's like picturing Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, it's like, that was the worst possible way. The only reason why he's doing that. It's not like he twisted his ankle down in Bethany, raised Lazarus from the dead and tripped on a rock. Now he's limping. He was fulfilling Zechariah, which was saying that your king will come to you righteous and having salvation is he riding on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so you have Jesus with these donkeys. Anyway, so the people put it together and they're waving the palm branches, Hosanna, save us. They're not going to be saying save us unless he has the power to save. Um, so save us with the, with the branches association. They're thinking king. And of course, they all, they're all missing it. And um, some of them, certainly not all of them, because we know at the, at the cross on Good Friday, we know that the 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 main voices of opposition to Jesus were Pharisees and scribes, and they were kind of stirring up the fire, the Sadducees. But the people, there were people there who were sad, like the women there at the, at the foot of the cross. I mean, they were thinking, so Mary and Martha, where Jesus had gone into their house way back when, and uh, I guess it's still yet coming up for us in Luke 10, actually, when he goes into their house, and it's the famous, like, oh, Martha... Um, Mary has chosen the better part. She's complaining that, that Mary's not working. 
Um, well, that's so Lazarus is their brother. And he raised Lazarus from the dead. And so here they all are on Good Friday and they're watching this whole thing go down. And they're just like devastated by it. So a lot of people had seen the resurrection of Lazarus. They're there on, on Palm Sunday. They were kind of working this thing through. But what's going to start happening more clearly in the, over the course of Luke, Luke 9 is this highlighting a misunderstanding of who Jesus is by the disciples, which is really just, it's a picture of how we often misunderstand the way that Jesus wants to be the Lord. A Lord who comes and who wants to be known as king on the cross with a crown of thorns, not a crown of gold, who, who, who certainly has all the power in the universe and yet chooses to work toward us in mercy and lowliness. That's the contrast. And, the, and the, time and time again, when you start with that as you're like operating hermeneutic or interpretation guide for looking at Luke 9, everything starts to make sense. The disciples can't seem to get miracles to work anymore. Why? Well, it's, it's not like they, they, they misplaced the post-it note that had the magic words on it. But what do you think? It's like, what, can you imagine being the disciples? Like, well, it was Yesterday we cast out a demon and it worked and today it's not working. The, what's, what's shifting is not like Jesus's power, but it's ultimately, well, let's, get, let me, let's just look at it. <laughs> Getting ahead of myself. Luke 9, verse 37 on the next day, so we ask, after what? Next day from what? So it's the transfiguration that just happened. And so it's likely that they either slept. I mean, some commentators suppose that they probably, I mean, it's a mountain, they're up on top of a mountain, and it's probably late, which is why the disciples kept falling asleep, even though they're always falling asleep. So Jesus is always turning bread into melatonin, apparently. <laughs> One taker on that one. Thank you. <laughs> the disciples are always falling asleep. So they fall asleep on that night, maybe, and they stay on top of the mountain. And then the next day, they potentially are coming down. Or it's just the next day. In any case, uh, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. Where have we seen this kind of dynamic before? Solomon with the babies? Well, that's certainly the case. That's an Old Testament theme. I'm thinking more in the Gospel of Luke. Son of the centurion. Oh, the centurion's son? I was thinking widow of, widow of Nain, where you get the language of, so Jesus is walking out, or Jesus is walking into the town of Nain, and the widow's walking out, and they're, they're carrying the beer, but not the good kind. <laughs> I need a sound box guy over here. And uh, Jesus touches the beer and the, and the, and the boy stands up and the, and the text makes it clear. I mean, one of the big emphases there is that Jesus is showing mercy to this widow and how the only son would have been so, such a big deal for her and her ability to provide for herself, the only son. So to here, it's his only child and everything is kind of wrapped up and like his future is gonna take care of him and he's, he, certainly his love. We all can, if you got children, you can kind of, think about what this must have been like. His only kid and his kid's like possessed. So he's going through this turmoil. And behold, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at his mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. So you get this like somewhat symptoms of some kind of seizure, it would seem. And I beg your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. 
So there's the shift. So they've been casting out demons. They just did it. He sent them out and they're going to be sending them out again. And they're like, they're all excited. They could cast out demons in his name, but now they're unable to cast out demons. Why? Well, one quick note back, you know, not to go down the, the, the black hole of demon possession and stuff, but um, in modern, like post-enlightenment, um, you've got more of a, a focus on science than the spiritual realm. And so there's a shift that happens with people are looking at what, what was historically maybe called demon possession is now demons are completely ruled out. And now it's some sort of like medical, biomedical thing. So they need some medicines, maybe some psychological help and some, some medicine, some meds for whatever the diagnosis is. And that's going to solve the problem as though the devil is not maybe wrapped up in this in a way. So CFW Walther actually, so he's the founding guy of the Missouri Synod. He's written on this a little bit because even in that time, in the early 19th century, you had people were working this thing out. So science is telling us that we can treat this psychological disorder with this treatment. And the, and the Bible yet has a similar, similar symptoms and they're casting out the devil and the symptoms all go away. So which is it? And is it, is it possible that it's both? And that's CS, or a CFW Walther's um, approach to this. It's like, as, as medical science, which we would acknowledge is actually a, the gift from the Lord, right? He has given us our reason and our strength and the whole medical community. But it is always ministerial or subservient to the Lord's word. And so we recognize that if a person's showing some symptoms that would seem to be demon possession. All right, you probably need some meds, but also you're baptized. The Lord Jesus is with you. And, and the demons flee at, this, at the name of the Lord Jesus. So just in the back of your mind, the way demons and demonology and all that stuff is portrayed so often in movies and, and stuff, um, keep in mind that the devil flees at the name of Jesus. The presence of Jesus is what really ticks off the demons. You bear his name through holy baptism. He's with you. Um, but as we're like, if you're ever finding yourself in a weird situation, uh, just to all things are sanctified by the word of God in prayer, bring, say the Lord's prayer. Make the sign of the cross. Remember that you're baptized. You just said the name of the triune God himself. Um, all right, so we're bringing, we're casting out the demons that may or may not be involved in this mess, which they always are. There's always going to be demons involved with, with sin and the impacts of sin. Not just like doing sin against your neighbor, but any kind of physical depravity at all, is it not a result of sin in the world? So you've got, and then the, the, the physical depravity itself bringing despair and anxiety to the family a lack of faith, um, all, all that. The demons are kind of swarming there. So cast out the demons, but then also do referrals. So that's the pastoral theology or pastoral counseling classes that they're giving to the seminary these days where it's like, we certainly recognize that there's plenty of medical issues that people are gonna be dealing with. So we're, we have to recognize all right, this is some sort of a disorder that's outside of my ex area of expertise. I'll forgive sins. And by that, by the way, it renders the demons powerless. Think about that. What, what does Satan mean? Satan means 
accuser, the accuser. And what's he accused of? Sin. So when sin is stripped away, the devil has like got nothing. That's his main thing. Now, again, Hollywood messes this all up for us. Like the devil's really main thing is that he can make your head turn around backwards and you throw up weird things and you turn green and walk on the ceiling, right? Whatever weird, like, no, that's not it. The real, the real demonology issue is this trying to cut us off from the comfort of the gospel and have us turn away from that and despair of that. So speaking the gospel into that mess is the forgiveness of sins. And then we refer, find a good counselor, hopefully Christian counselors, uh, to refer people to with a variety of different ailments that could be, because they could need medication that God himself has provided through his means, right? Just as like, I'm really hungry. I keep praying for God to take away my hunger. Well, go to McDonald's. God gave you McDonald's. <laughs> maybe, maybe pick something healthier. All right, and I beg your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. This could is that word going back to ability, Remember, we made that distinction about ability and power, where ability is within the person and authority is given to an individual. And so the disciples were given both, both the power and the authority to cast out demons. And now they find themselves in the face of a demon with this little kid and they can't cast it out. So Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. So Jesus is getting mad that they couldn't cast out the demon. So like, to put yourself in their shoes, wait a second, I followed the, I followed the post-it note instructions you gave on how to cast out the demons. Like what, it's just not working. And you're mad at me? I mean, think this through. So why, or maybe, why is it, do you think, maybe, that they're unable to cast out the demons? And I think it's connected to why Jesus gets upset and says what he says. Any thoughts? Because he's soon to die. Sure, and it, well, he's already done that. So he's already he's already given the power and authority to cast out demons, and they were doing it successfully before, and now they're coming back, and they seem to have lost the ability. Like when Superman goes into that chamber at the end of Superman Two or whatever it is and he's no longer able to do all of his magical stuff. Anybody? Superman? Yeah. Maybe they got too wrapped up in their ability to throw out, to, to, to throw out demons. Good. So Dave said they got too wrapped up in their own ability to cast out demons. Is, so we got some hands back here. Faith in themselves versus Jesus. Good. There's something over here. Have they ever done it in his presence? Uh, no, I, I, not that I can recall. Um, and this was actually, Jesus wasn't there. It's when Jesus was on top of the mountain of transfiguration, when they, they brought this boy to the disciples and they couldn't cast out the demons. So I guess that's the, the reference. Yeah, Josh.
Well, the Greek word with twisted there was, um, it's, it's actually having been made crooked. It's passive. So like you've been, you've been twisted. Good reference. A little bit more towards this isn't God doing it. Hey, look at what I'm doing. I, and that's why the, the demon was like, you know, Paul comes over, I throw you out, demon. Well, you're just Paul. You're doing it in the name of Paul. You're not doing it in the name of Christ, and I know that. Good. Even if they're you trying to use the Lord's name to do it, like they're saying the right words, but ultimately a shift toward more of a focus on their own ability and power. Which, so I think all of these are, are, are at the same, looking at the same thing as a shift in, and it, which we'd expect it. They've been, they've been casting out demons. So you're gonna kind of get pretty, pretty high up on yourself and you can walk into a place and do miracles and cast out demons. So there seems to be a shift. And I, and I think you're right. Um, when we talk about faith, we talked about this before, faith is only as strong as its object. So if you want to have strong faith, that means you want to have your faith in a strong thing. So what's happening with the disciples seems to be, and it's going to continue to unfold this way, as they, they're, they're either putting their faith in themselves more so than in the power of Christ, and also, along with that, is in, even in putting their faith in Christ. What is the Christ they're putting their faith in? In what way will he be the Christ? So in the same way that the Mormons believe in Jesus. The Mormons will tell you they believe in Jesus, but it's not a Jesus who died on the cross for all of your sins. So it's a different Jesus. So does that Jesus save? We would say no because it's not the biblical Jesus. And so perhaps that's, that's behind what's going on here with the disciples is they're starting to shift a focus on their own abilities and also, and it seems to be most importantly from the text, is a shift in understanding who Jesus, how Jesus wants to be the Messiah. Yeah, Keith. Yeah. And yeah, so uh, Keith's saying that he's frustrated that they're just not getting it. And remember, uh, one, one thing you have to always do when you're reading the, the scriptures is that like when Jesus gets frustrated with them and says this to them, you, you foolish and twisted generation, Jesus isn't wasting his words. How does repentance happen? How does faith happen? through hearing. It's not like you really just have to figure it out. Get your books and sit down and study really hard and you're going to figure it out. No, the prophets are sent to bring repentance. So when Jesus says hard things like this, it is in fact the thing that's bringing faith in the disciples. You crooked and foolish generation, it's like convicting of the, of the law. Bring your son here. Uh, oh, so by the way, uh, oh, Foolish, oh, faithless and twisted generation. So generation, who's he referring to? Who's the reference? Like, the, could it be the dad? I, I would argue it's everybody. And generation, you, you see it in the scriptures, it's, it's 
sometimes it'll be used for a timeline. That's why we think about generations. But the way the scriptures often do it is have to do with a, 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 a particular kind of people, like a, a way of thinking. And that would be, I think, more the implication here. So though a generation, a way of, of people who have put their faith in themselves, they have been twisted. How long am I to be with you? Well, not too much longer now, even though it's only Luke 9, the timeline is short. I think it's only a couple months from this point where Jesus is on the cross. So I'm not going to be with you too much longer. It would really be nice if you guys would get this. While he was coming, the demon threw him on the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit. Remember, rebuke is the word that Jesus, is what Luke uses out of Jesus' mouth to do like all of these cool miracles. So he rebukes the disease in Peter's mom. He rebukes the fever. Uh, he rebukes demons. He rebukes sin. He's, he's just rebuking stuff and it makes it go away. Because again, when Jesus says stuff, it's God in the flesh. And that's the word at creation that created. It's really, I mean, it's deep. But when God the Father spoke, let there be light. That's, in some way, we are to understand that as Jesus, the word through whom all things were made. And that word becomes flesh in the person of Christ. So when he speaks, these aren't just like commentary on things. His words create realities. So he's able to so easily rebuke the unclean spirit. And the only then, the only power or authority that would be effective from the disciples casting out demons would be casting out demons in his name, but him rightly understood fully. In the same way, I mean, there's not a lot of difference in the way you see the carryover into the New Testament church, like even our practice today with holy absolution. It is not a power within oneself. It's a language of office by the authority, not power. Authority given to me by the Lord Jesus, your sins are forgiven. I forgive you all. It's not just your sins are forgiven. I forgive you all of your sins. How do you do that? I, well, it's about him. He wants to speak this through me. It's only his word that does anything. Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit that healed the boy and gave him back to his father. Like this interesting addition there that Luke adds to, to emphasize the mercy of Christ, to get this picture of dad who is devastated, my only son. Um, and Jesus picks up the boy and takes him back and hands him over. Here you go. Whatever conversation would have followed there is fun to think about. Uh, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. There's the majesty. And it's going to come up right in the, in the same verse. But while they were, while they were all marveling, they're, they're, they're somehow enthralled by this, this, power, this great power of God. And they're marveling at this majesty of God. But remember, it's been like for us a whole week since we studied this last. But leading up to the transfiguration, which is only a day before this, only day, so two days before this verse, is Jesus had, had just been talking about his cross. Remember? So Jesus had been talking about the Son of God must be suffered, must be betrayed, handed over, crucified, and died, right? Peter says, let it not be so, that whole interchange. Then the transfiguration, which has Jesus as this power Jesus in glory. And, but no, we're to learn from that text that manas Jesus is at the end of that text, Jesus only. Jesus only, 
not all the bells and whistles of his power and glory, but Jesus is the one who comes off the mountain and heads to the cross. That's how he wants to be known as Savior, not with all the power, which he certainly has, but sets it aside. He empties himself. So all were astonished. The same word that there's twice in Luke prior to now is when Jesus was in the temple. As a, as a boy, they were astonished that he would be having that conversation with the scribes. And then also um, when, they, when he first started teaching in Luke 4, I think, they were astonished that he was teaching with authority and not as the scribes. While they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus says to his disciples, listen, let these words sink into your ears. <laughs> so we're, we, we still kind of, will this sink in? The frustration is still kind of there. Let this sink into your heads. And the Greek there is just, it's, it's just as clear. It's, it's let the words get into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered to the hands of men. So you're, you're missing the point. You're focusing on this majesty and marveling at this greatness of God. It's not how it's gonna work. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them. So it's called a divine passive when something is, is done and there's no explanation for it other than God being the actor. It was concealed from them though at this point, so they might not perceive it. So now we're able to see faith and under, right understanding of what kind of Christ, what kind of God Christ wants to be, or what kind of Messiah Christ wants to be as a gift itself. Always good to slow down and remind ourselves of that. You ever get frustrated at your, at your loved ones for just not getting it? If they could just think it through, why can't they just get it? Or your neighbors with all the signs in their yard pushing whatever agendas that you're just mad at? Can't they just get it? We're reminded here that faith and the life of repentance, repentance itself, these are all gifts. To be sure, work through means, right? So it's not like the Holy Spirit's just zapping folks. So it works through the gift of conversation and, and, the, and the gospel, but it's, it's a gift nonetheless. And so that's why we pray for things like repentance and faith. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Why? He just, called him. <laughs> he just he just lashed out. You twisted and faithless. Why don't you get it? Uh, can you? I, don't, I still don't get it. <laughs> no one's going to ask that. They're like, Pop, Peter, you ask him. No, he just called me Satan like yesterday. <laughs> so. Or maybe it's just kind of this heavy theme. They, wanna, they don't want to talk about it because if on the off chance that they're starting to piece it together, the Son of Man's going to be handed over. I guess it was six days prior to the transfiguration. They talked about his cross. It's kind of a downer topic. They don't want to maybe linger on him. So Jesus, let's just not... Let's talk about something else. So you said, yeah, it was concealed from them. Yeah, I'm, I'm aiming this understanding that God would be the one doing the concealing of this from them. Who is the, who is the, act, who is the active person in the concealing? So that, that's what, at least that's what the commentators, the point that they make, and I agree, it's called a divine passive. It's the same, it's the same sense that at the end of Luke's gospel, where you've got the, road, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and it says they were kept from recognizing him. My question is, though, if that is God doing that, wouldn't that be like God hamstringing himself? Yeah, th this is an interesting thing. Is this not exactly what he does with his law? Um, where the law says, be perfect, repent, 
Um, so the law seems to cast things in a way that's putting everything on us and then gets frustrated at us for not being able to do it and yet also convicts that we're not able to do it. And then he gets mad at sinners for sinning. That's all the way of the law. That's what the law has us pinned in at and which is why the gospel then breaks and shatters that whole mold. The law leaves us helpless, despairing, hopeless, and, and empty-handed so that faith, salvation, it's all by way of gift. And it's happening in this conversation. So they're kept from seeing it. They're blinded. I mean, he quotes from Isaiah, even in today's gospel reading, this whole idea of go and, go and preach so that in hearing they may not hear, and seeing they may not see. What? You're supposed to go spread the gospel so that they hear and see. So why does he send Isaiah to go and preach the gospel, to preach a message that will in fact harden them? because that's what the law does. But it's also in the preaching of that that ultimately will bring about faith and life. But that's a, that's a, good, it's a great point, because it's along the same vein as that I, the word given to Isaiah. Go and preach the gospel so that they'll be hardened and not believe. What? But at, even in saying that, like the, the Pharisee is listening to that message. So you're, you're hardening people that they can't believe? Well, I, I wanna believe. That's the conversation of faith. So these harsh messages from the Lord that seem to offer no way out are the law doing its job on us and to the, and to the hearers. So then they're afraid to ask him this saying, and then an argument arises among them as to which of them was the greatest. Again, this flip from power this focus on a, if it's a kingdom defined by the majesty and uh, they're marveling at the majesty and power of God who's working in glory and strength. If that's the, if that how the kingdom is defined, then power is something we need to fight about. And so that's the very thing. Which one is the greatest? The Greek word greatest, mega. And that's gonna come up here in a second. The most mega. Uh, just after Jesus speaks of his death, which by the way, they, they, they famously argue again. Do you remember when? They argue another time, just after the Lord's Supper on Good Friday, when they're heading to the garden, they're fighting along the way. Uh, Jesus, well, so, yeah, they, they're expecting the, the kingdom to be by way of earthly power. Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts. So he's like, he's able to perceive not only their not only their, what we would say, their thoughts, but the rationale behind it. So not just that they're fighting, but why it is that they feel the need to be fighting. So he doesn't say, will you guys just stop fighting? Get along. He's recognizing that they're missing, they think this kingdom is about power and strength, which is why they're fighting about this thing. So, Knowing the reasoning of their hearts, he took a child and put him by his side and said, whoever received this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. So why a child? What's he teaching? What's the thing about a child? Well, so Sue said it's a simple faith. And I think 
Jesus does talk about talk that way in other places where he talks about like the faith of a child, um, which would be just kind of accepting what the Lord's speaking, and we we that's commended. But he's not talking here as much about that as much as in the context of them fighting about who has more power. So how much power does a a kid have? So they're completely helpless. They ha- their strength is in someone else, which is exactly what we sing in the, the Jesus loves me. I am weak, he is strong. The stronger we get, the more we start to think we don't need him, right? So the weaker we get, the, the, the more we're just kind of despairing of ourselves, the more Jesus is everything putting faith more and more in a stronger thing, and that's where the strength is. Whoever receives a child in my name receives me. Now, what's that in my name? It's an interesting phrase choice there. Where do we hear that? Baptize, go make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So to receive a child in the name of Jesus and holy baptism, certainly commended but also just in, on account of the teaching of Jesus uh, and everything that he's been teaching about the lowly being raised up, um, which is also, remember the Magnificat back at the beginning of Luke when Mary sings that the, um, the, the mighty, he has cast down from their thrones. He raised up the lowly, cast down the mighty. Uh, whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least, micro is the Greek, among you all, is the one who is great, mega. So if you want to be great, start fighting about who's the least. But then, in fact, you're fighting about who's the best of being the least, you miss the point again. But that would be the way the sinful nature, isn't it? So ultimately, the greatest is the one who is the most humble. I must be the most humble. And just like that, you've undone the whole thing. So Jesus is flipping the world's way of it with the way of his cross, which again, Mary emphasizes with her Magnificat. The less we are, the more that is his. We got, I got plenty of time. Verse, any questions thus far? My, micro, mega. Yes, Dave, David. Yeah, and even in our sinful flesh, we can also make an idol out of, like, yeah, seeing those, the, the most, I mean, this would actually be the argument made by the atheists, is that they're able to be kind and selfless and serving in the community without any kind of motivation by the gospel. So if you're holding up people's value according to their selflessness and humility, even that's missing the point, because we would recognize that, especially before God, we are declared righteous only because of Christ. And all of his works are given to me and all of even my righteous acts are as filthy rags. In that conversation. 
Um, but we also recognize in our conversation with one another in our service toward each other in our communities and our vocations, we're able to see God's hand in it. So that even the person who's giving selflessly and, and serving and all this, we're, the Lord's teaching us that it is God who's serving through that person. So even we're given to not hold up that person, but give thanks to the Lord for that person. So even like I carefully crafted that in um, and we try to keep the week at a glance concise. Otherwise, our, it, as concise as we try to make it, people still say, well, I kind of skim it. <laughs> but then the note about the Schultzes um, causing us much, much despair and taking a call. But in there is like a note on, we give thanks to our Lord for the gift of the Schultzes. So we're able to recognize all things as gift. And by the way, in case I don't get there, if you've ever wondered why, in the prayers of the church, um, and Beth, Beth will tell you how annoying I am with grammar sometimes. Uh, so um, the, if you'll notice in the, the listing of the prayers of the church, we'll pray for Joe, friend to Mike. Friend to Mike. We don't talk that way. It's a friend of Mike, right? So we use of as possession. But in prayer, by using the word to, it's a friend given to Mike by another, namely God. So all even the crafting of the word, the, the, the phraseology of the prayers of the church is having us see all of our relationships with one another by way of gift. Fathers to children, husbands to wives, not of, which shows our possession, but rather gift, who's, who's the giver uh, and, and by the way, since Dave brought it up, David, could you hold up your, oh, you've got a cover on it. If you, don't, if you don't have the Lutheran Study Bible, it's called, it weighs about 45 pounds. And you can get it in a small, like I've got a small one that I got back when my eyes work better and now I just can't see the footnotes in that thing. You can also get a really big, large print version. That one weighs about 100 pounds. Um, you can get it online. James reminded me everything's online. I, I commend that resource to you. It is extremely helpful, um, mostly because the, it's the first time, at least in my recollection, so the Missouri Synod has the old NIV self-study Bible from like the 80s, which was a, they took a Baptist self-study Bible. And the Baptists believe the Bible is God's word, so we rejoice in that, but there's certainly some things that we disagree with. And so there's a little bit of residue or some, there's just some lackingness in the footnotes of that st study Bible. And it was NIV. Well, with the new lectionary in 2006, we flipped over to the ESV. And so we use the ESV for like the Bibles that we have for the church. And the ESV Bible, uh, that, that translation, they have a com the, the commentary for that, or the study Bible for that is put together by Lutheran pastors or uh, Lutheran seminary professors and also Lutheran pastors it working in tandem so that, and it was all, if you, if you flip to the back and look at like the list of pastors who put this thing together, it's all guys who've been serving for like 25 years, 30 years. I know a lot of these guys. And for, to look at it, the list, you're like, these guys have been, they've been fielding questions from people for a long, long time. That's the, that's the gem there. It's like, these are the kinds of questions that people inevitably ask every time this text comes up. So we need to have a footnote about it. Or we need to have a, a half-page article about why is Jesus sometimes called the Son of Man and sometimes called the Son of God? And what does it matter? What's the difference there? What's the Old Testament 
connections. So you have all these little articles that showcase these ideas, and it's, it's very much pastoral in its, in its approach. So you can get that on CPH. Um, I think I get a kickback for referencing it now. No. But it is helpful, and a great gift for confirmands. If you're looking for grandchildren, children, if they don't have one of those, a great, great thing for them to have um, as they grow, continue to grow in the faith. All right, um, verse 49, Jesus answered, or, sorry, John. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, that's in your name again, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. John tries to change the subject. That's a good point. Okay, right on the heels of the little kids there. And John's like, okay, okay, fine, whatever. Uh, earlier, there was a guy casting out demons and we tried to stop him. Like Jesus is like, what are you, what are you? Why would they care about someone else casting out demons in his name? They're jealous. Again, going back to the power. So we, we were trying to cast out demons and we couldn't do it. And now somebody else is actually doing it. But we're part of the inner circle, Jesus. We don't know that guy. We've been walking with you. If he wants to be on the inside, he has to like, I don't know, learn the secret handshake or something. And Jesus, because note here, he is casting out demons. How? In your name, in Christ's name. So this is where it enables Jesus. It's not just casting out demons. They're not going to be casting out demons unless they actually are putting their faith in the right place, right? And so do not stop him for the one who is, a, is not against you is for you. Um, so that's that language of for you. So we are even seeing the neighbor as a, as a gift. They're casting out demons in the Lord's name. They're a gift to you. Um, and it's not a general thing like, okay, just a general statement. If someone's not actively attacking you, then they're obviously on your side. That's not the point that Jesus is saying here. And you'll, you'll sometimes hear it quoted out of context. In the context, he's saying that these guys are not against you. You're, per you're perceiving it that they're somehow a threat to your power or your insideness of being a disciple. But they're, they're with us because they're casting out demons in the name of Jesus. See? So it's not to say that anybody who's not actively attacking you is, is necessarily for you. Well, that's not necessarily the case either. You can come up with plenty of examples as to how that would be. People who might be leaving you alone who are causing damage are not for you. Samaritan rejects Jesus, verse 51. And this is, according to uh, a lot of commentaries, this is the shift in the Gospel of Luke. When the days drew near for him to be taken up. What's that? It's like whenever E.T. gets, <laughs> I'll be right here. And then he, <laughs> right before he's at, it's the ascension, his death, resurrection, ascension, all go together. The days drew near for him to accomplish everything he's going to accomplish. He set his face to journey to Jerusalem. And that's the shift. So up till now, he's been doing the Galilean ministry. He's trying to avoid going to the cross just yet. He's wanting to thoroughly teach his disciples, teach the gospel. And now he sets his face toward Jerusalem. And the momentum picks up steam. We're only at Luke 9, and there's like 24 chapters in Luke. And it's just going to cover those next, the rest of the, the gospel of, of Luke is all covering a very small amount of time. 
And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. Who are the Samaritans? We know one guy in particular, the good one, who didn't even exist, by the way, right? That's a parable, which will unfold later. Who are the Samaritans? Sorry, I cut off some voices. The intermixed northern tribes, good. So when, if you think back to your first, first and second kings um, history there and chronicles, when you have the division in the kingdoms, because after Solomon dies, he passes the baton to Rehoboam, and Rehoboam and Jeroboam are fighting over whose power. One's going to be the king. One's the rightful king according to genetics. One's a king because of popularity, Jeroboam. And Jeroboam's like, me and my people don't need this. And they go north to Samaria, Samaria, and they start, they establish a new kingdom up there, with it a new temple, an entirely new worship system. But it's got these like, it's got this residue of Israelite worship, like the idea of having a temple and sacrifices, that's all there. But the thing was, Jesus put his temple down in Jerusalem, or Jesus, Yahweh put his temple in Jerusalem. And so you've got this this contrary faith. And also, as you fast forward the history of Israel, they're all fighting with each other. Like the northern tribes go and make alliance with Egypt to go in and wipe out the southern tribes. And their Babylon comes in and they're like, yeah, just fighting with each other constantly. So there's this long-standing feud and hatred between them, which is why Jesus uses the Good Samaritan to emphasize when the guy asks, who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, the Samaritans. The worst person you can think of are your neighbors. Um, but you see there's like, because of that history, it flows both ways. The Samaritans hate Israel and Israel hates Samaritans. The people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. So remember for the Samaritans, the, the rightful place of worship is not Jerusalem. It's up in their native, where their temple is. So for Jesus to be showing favoritism to Jerusalem is cutting himself off from the Samaritans. And so it ticks them off. Uh, so this is why they, why they reject him. They did not receive him, which is really, that's the whole ministry of Jesus. He was sent to his own and his own did not receive him. And when his disciples, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, often called the sons of thunder, when they saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Again, power versus weakness. Do you, and, and notice who's got the power. Do you want us to call down power from heaven? Uh, which is, you got this, like, again, the hostility and wrath, or the fire obviously representing the wrath of God against sin. And they're not too far off in a way, because coming up, like, next chapter, Jesus sends out the 72, and he talks about those who reject you. Um, better off are those who are of Sodom and Gomorrah than, than for them. How did Sodom and Gomorrah perish? Fire from heaven. So it's like they're, they're kind of, like, thinking down that way. Also, Elijah had some, like, armies destroyed by fire from heaven. And so we've seen it happen before, but it is the way of power versus the way of the cross. And so Jesus turns and rebukes them and they go to another village. So again, uh, the apostle, he rebukes them. He's upset by the apostle's attitude and missing the, missing the point. For the fire of God's wrath 
will be poured out where? No. The fire of God's wrath fully is poured out on Jesus, on the cross. And those who are outside of Jesus face the wrath on the last day. But ultimately, all the wrath is he drinks the dregs of the wrath of God. He drinks it down to the bottom of the barrel. That's what's happening on the cross on Good Friday, which and we'll maybe unfold this in the sermon on Good Friday. But when Jesus is doing the cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's suffering hell for us on the cross. That's the full fire of God's wrath against sin poured out on Jesus, not for those who are temporarily rejecting him here in Samaria. And by the way, you find out that a lot of these people would have come to faith later. The gospel returns to Samaria in Acts chapter one. So they bring the gospel back and many of these same people who are rejecting him end up coming, uh, coming, becoming Christian later. Uh, so they're, they're just putting, again, force instead of the, the, the lowliness and patience of the gospel. Next week is Easter. So we're not gonna have Bible study next week. So we'll pick up the following week on the cost of following Jesus with verse 57. And we'll wrap up chapter nine for sure in two weeks. Uh, next week on Easter. So if um, same two services, 8, 30 and 11, uh, the, the only difference is in here, this will start approximately around 10 o'clock. Casseroles, we're, instead of the, the traditional youth breakfast, this year we're trying something a little different. Uh, casseroles, you can sign up for bringing casseroles or pastries or something. And the kids will have like an Easter egg hunt probably inside somewhere because of the weather and have some crafts to do. And um, mostly just time for fellowship, like our Easter breakfast has always, has always been. The Lord be with you.